0: things that pulses through me, you need to know, uh, is the promise and hope of the church. You know, I got involved in this church as founding lead pastor, and the reason is that I am deeply bullish on the church. And you might say, well, wait a minute, nobody likes the church, Um, nobody likes an institution. Well, I do. I... (laughs) It's not the institution of the church, uh, it's the people and the promise, and it's the hope of God that resides in our midst, and so it almost moves me to tears. Uh, We are the church, and we're bullish on the church in 2024, so I'm really glad to be a part of this church, and we start, I like to start the new year reminding you of core practices at Community West. So people will say, well, what does it mean to be all in here? And I want to say that for covenant partners or people who are all in, we capture it in the three Cs, celebrate, connect, and contribute. So what we mean is, uh, if you want to be all in, celebrate is you commit to one of our Sunday services like this one, Whether you're, uh, unless you're sick or you're out of town, you make this the highest of high priorities. To be renewed uh, in the gospel, in the gathering of the people of God once a week. It's one of the important practices of people committed to Christ. And we say it's important to be committed to it. One of the in-person Sunday gatherings. Above all else, honestly, activity in the church uh, right here together. Second is connect. It means you commit to a home group uh, during the year or in the January term to a learning seminar. Now, community is king. This is our primary path of discipleship. And um, the learning seminars give you a great way to cross-fertilize and expand your friendship circles beyond your home group. So they start this afternoon, and we encourage all of you to take part in one of our learning seminars. And lastly, contribute means you commit to serve on a Sunday morning servant team, and you commit to regular financial support of our mission. We believe biblically the church is a volunteer organization. We have a lean staff. You'll hardly ever hear, hey, we have staff for that. It's, it, we have a very lean staff. And so it's a, we're a do-it-yourself church. We're all hands on deck. And so it's because we believe that the gifts are in the people. And we believe that you won't actually have a sense of belonging in this community until your gifts and your service is on display. So we just invite you as a minimal thing to get involved on the Sunday Servant team. So if you're a covenant partner you want to be all in here, I hope that you will recommit as the New Year starts to the three C's. One last thing, um, if you are a middle or high schooler, I want to invite you now to go with Nolan to the Youth Breakout. Well, I feel like a lot of, a lot of things about the church year are colliding today. Um, you heard Christy talk about Advent and Christmas, and we have Epiphany. Uh, we're still in Christmas, Christmastide. And Epiphany actually begins ordinary time, and so I think a lot of things are happening. And I love that we're in our sermon series, our Advent and Christmas sermon series, The World Waits for a Miracle, Nothing Could Be More Appropriate. Our thesis in this series is that the miracle we hope for to deal with injustice, to deal with everything wrong in the world, to bring peace and an end to evil, is the return of Jesus Christ. He came the first time in humility as Messiah, and he will return imminently in glory as judge and king to restore the earth to the way it was before sin and death. So it's a great way to start the new year. Why? Advent is a word that means coming. We're waiting for the coming of Jesus. Some of you are going, well, wait, we were doing that in December. No. It's the posture of a disciple every day and week and month of the year. Fleming Rutledge writes, in a very real sense, the Christian community lives in Advent all the time. See, don't you See? We are uniquely the people who live in between the first and the second comings of Jesus Christ. And so as we begin the new year, we are people who are waiting for his imminent return. So today's reading is the words of Jesus. First time we've had that in this series. It's Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. And what we're going to learn is we're waiting for the return of the bridegroom to start the wedding feast. So, we want to read Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13, and I might say it's a larger section that Matthew provides of Jesus' teaching on his return. And I'll just say, um, Jesus spends a lot of airtime on his return, and one of the thoughts that goes through my mind is when he returns, if any of you are surprised, Jesus might look at you and say, well, who's your pastor? Didn't he tell you that I'm going to return? And so I'm telling you, Jesus spends a lot of air time on his return, and therefore we should too. So go home this afternoon, read all of Matthew chapters 24 and 25. You will be amazed. And we're just going to read the first portion of chapter 25 today. So let's pray as we turn to it. Uh, Lord Christ, uh, this is your church. It's not our church. We're sitting here, but in no way is it our church. It is your church, and the reason we're bullish on it is your grace and mercy residing in the people, and the work, and the mission here. And so to you be all glory, Lord Christ. We thank you also for your word, and we pray that as we start the new year, we would attend to it and be shaped by it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Matthew 25, verses 1 to 13. Hear the word of the Lord. The words of Jesus. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, Matthew's gospel is sometimes called a discipleship manual. Matthew is the one who has the Sermon on the Mount and all the teachings about following Jesus. And so there's a question about what does it mean to be a disciple. And first, did you notice the scene in this reading? You know, one of the things that we learn when we look at scripture is that The church's experience of the return of Jesus Christ will be a wedding banquet. And so I think some of us think sometimes, oh, well, you know, Jesus starts out his parable, the kingdom of heaven is like. And so sometimes I think we think, oh, well, I know what that's like. Heaven is like. It's going to be like a choir rehearsal or a church service, only longer. It's going to be all pillowy, and it's not going to be very material and very interesting. That's why nobody looks forward to it. But Jesus is saying, oh no, you think of the most fantastic wedding celebration that you can imagine, the very finest food, the very finest drink, the best music, the best dancing, the best celebration. All your friends are there and all the conversations are good (laughs) and wholesome. Jesus says, if you get that picture in your mind, then you've only begun to imagine what the kingdom of heaven will be like when I return. It'll be joyous beyond your imagining. You won't want it to end because the experience is so full of joy. I think um, the other way to see that image is that it will be one of intimacy with Christ. In Revelation 21, John foresees Jesus return this way. Then he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw, And so this is the part I want you to see. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. How? Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. So imagine a bride's bliss on her wedding day. And what is marriage but the intimacy Of the union, the oneness between a man and a wife. And John is saying in Revelation that this will be the experience of the entire church when Jesus returns. John continues, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling is now among the people, and He will dwell with them. They will be His people, and God Himself will be with them and be their God. And here it is. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. And notice this. The old order of things has passed away. So what will the wedding union be like uh, when the whole creation has been made new and it's returned to its Eden-like state? The old order of things has passed away. What is old order stuff? Well, old order stuff is political division, racial pain and mass graves in Ukraine and the Middle East. Old order stuff is a school shooting in Iowa and 126 dead from an earthquake in Japan. Old order stuff is the tears of a family standing by a hole in the ground waiting to receive yet another. New order stuff is the return of the bridegroom in joy to enjoy oneness of union with his church. New order stuff is solving sin and death. New order stuff is no more mourning, crying, or pain. So what we're doing is simply trying to fill out the picture of Christ's return as the bridegroom. And it's the primary motif here. Um, It's really one of the primary motifs in Scripture of Christ's kingdom when he returns. And I think... um, Sometimes we think to ourselves, well, it's like the new, beginning of the new year, and I'm really going to have to work to make the new year hopeful. And I don't know if you have that thought as you go into the new year, like how will I work to make this year a better year than last year? I will work to have resolutions that I can lean into. I feel like really that the scripture is saying to us, no, you don't have to work to have hope. In his grace, God is handing you hope in the waiting of the return of the bridegroom. So we're waiting in hope for the imminent return of the bridegroom to be united to his bride, the church. Uh, but now we have to wrestle with Jesus' teaching in today's reading. And the thing that I pulses this through again, I'll uh, just say it that way, Not every Bible reading has the same tone, and I struggled with this reading this week. I always ask the question, where is the good news in this? And so you just need to know that we're going to stay after that question, where is the good news in this? But not every Bible reading has the same tone, and in fact, the parable we read is a parable of warning. So the literary form is a parable. So what are parables? Some of you think you know. Um, Parables are small stories with a spiritual meaning, right? Jesus taught them in parables. So the standard answer is, why did Jesus teach in parables? Well, to make things simpler. But often Jesus' disciples didn't understand his parables. And Paul Ricoeur says, parables were not to make things simpler. Ricoeur writes, Parables are used to increase complexity and to call into question the reader's understanding. So, in other words, parables are meant to upset you. It's meant to disorient you before reorienting you to something new. Daryl Johnson has been helpful to me in providing three words that help us unpack the parables. The words are secular, surprise, and scandal. So, let's look at this parable one more time. So, the point is, Jesus always starts his parable with secular words. So it would be things like, a man had two sons, or a man went down on the road from, to Jericho. From, uh, and so these are the way parables starts, and this, people do this stuff all the time. Well, this one starts out in verse 1. At that time, when Jesus returns, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now, we're handicapped because this isn't our culture, but in ancient Near Eastern weddings... First, there was a betrothal between a man and a woman, which was a binding contract. To break a betrothal was like a divorce. As the couple's wedding day approached, the bride and the groom would go to their respective houses and make preparations for the wedding. Then the celebration would start when the groom came for his bride at an unscheduled time. And every Near Eastern wedding began with a torchlight dance performed by and it says virgins here, but think of unmarried women or bridesmaids. So it says the ten virgins took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. If you'd been hear, Jesus' original hearers, you would have said, oh, yeah, 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 I understand that. It's just the everyday, ordinary, secular start to the parable. Second, Johnson says we're surprised by what we hear next. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. So admittedly, the bridegroom was a long time in coming. But then he came. If you look at verse 6, at midnight the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. The surprise was that any of the bridesmaids didn't have oil for their lamps. Everybody knew what was going to happen when the bridegroom came. The bridesmaids had long poles, and they wrapped rags around the end, drenched in olive oil, lit for the torchlight dance. One commentator said they had to replenish the oil in the rags every 15 minutes. So the surprise is that some weren't ready for the groom's coming. They didn't have any oil. And so this is the sting of the parable. It's not being ready for the groom's coming. Well, third, Johnson says the scandal is the part of the parable, now listen carefully to this, that catches you off guard and offends your understanding of the way things are or should be. And there's a lot of offense and scandal in this parable. So if you paid attention, the five bridesmaids without oil for the torchlight dance asked the other five to give them oil. The five wise wise bridesmaids say, well, then we won't have enough. The five foolish bridesmaids go to town to buy oil, but it's too late. Verse 10, the virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. Now, here's the scandal. Are you ready? Get ready to be offended by Jesus. The door was shut. Later the others also came, Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Now everything in us would want to tell us, well, my God is not like this. But here's the point. We've got to let the parable distress us and disturb us and disorient us in order to reorient us. Jesus' own words. So it's a parable of judgment, and we've been saying that when when Jesus returns, he will return as the king and judge in glory to restore the earth. I'll say one more thing. I think we want judgment. Uh, It's vogue today for us to react against judgmentalism, and I understand that. And we say to people, don't be judgmental. Now, the irony is that many of the people who react the quickest against judgmentalism are themselves the most judgmental against any whiff of judgmentalism. (laughs) The point, though, is we all want justice. And I think it's not that we don't want judgment. It's that we, the only question is, who does the judging? And we say we want to put the world jesus to put the world to rights to right all the wrongs in the world and we know that to get justice there must be some kind of judgment necessarily on sin and evil so i'm just inviting you to creep toward uh, this idea of the type of judgment that is part of the redemption of the earth but that still doesn't help us with the scandal of the parable. So, the debate among the scholars uh, about who Jesus means by the five foolish bridemaids who are left on the wrong side of the door, some of the commentators say that the foolish bridemaids lacked the obedience of faith. And there's a sense in which this makes sense. It's partly because Matthew is a discipleship manual. Matthew is the one who says, uh, if you're even angry with your brother, you've murdered him. Or if you even look with someone with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Matthew has the high steel of Christian discipleship. And so it would be easy to say, well, Matthew must mean that there's something they haven't done in order to warrant their entry into the wedding banquet. So is that the obedience of faith? Well, we've been learning in this series, this is the part I really want you to hear, The good news of the gospel of the kingdom is that God's judgment is always paired with redemption. Now, stay with me here. So listen, to be sure, the judgment is dreadful. Later in Matthew 25, in the parable of the sheep and the goat, some people go the way of eternal judgment, while others go the way of eternal life. But stay with me. In scripture, judgment is always paired with redemption. It's the the honesty of the dreadfulness of sin and death that is paired with the beauty of the redemption of the lives of the human community. So in Malachi, the dreadful day of the coming of the refiner's fire and the launderer's soap is followed by, the fast follower is the calves frolicking in the field for those who revere his name. And in Matthew, Matthew's, Matthew chapters 24 and 25 are followed by this in chapter 26, verse 1. So when Jesus had finished saying all these things, all these dreadful things, all these warnings of judgment, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Bam! Bingo! Bingo! Are you with me see the most astonishing revelation in the bible is that jesus took god's judgment for our sin and evil into his own body so we wouldn't have to so is judgment fearsome yes but judgment is made safe by the redemptive atoning work of jesus christ on the cross so paul articulates it in second corinthians five twenty one: god made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of god So the point is not to sort of write off judgment and say that can't possibly be true. We need, for a holy, pure world, we need sin and evil to be judged. But here's the thing. The power of redemption stands right in the center. It stands as a way to make. See, what we learn is judgment is not the same thing as condemnation. And so in Romans 8, 1, Apostle Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So Jesus is trying to hold it all together, I think. He's trying to say, I'm going to put the world to rights. There is going to be a wonderful wedding feast, and there will be no taint of sin or stain in that feast. But in order for that to happen, I myself must become the Redeemer, for a broken and lost earth. So Jesus closes the parable this way, verse 13. He says, um, therefore, keep watch because you know the day or or you do not know the day or the hour. I was talking to somebody after the first service and they were talking about predicting the day or the hour. Jesus is clearest on nobody can predict the day or the hour. The thing is, we are to be prepared for his coming. So where are we with the obedience of faith in Matthew's discipleship manual? The obedience of faith that I am as comfortable with taking it all into consideration is the obedience of faith for Matthew and for Jesus in this portion of Matthew's gospel is constant readiness for the bridegroom's return. So it's not all the morality that you think of first, although that's part of it. But Jesus is getting at something else here. It's the longing of a bridegroom. Of a bride for the bridegroom. It's the longing of relationship and intimacy. It's constant readiness for the bridegroom's return. So what Jesus says to the foolish bridesmaids is, I don't know you. See, it's the longing of intimacy and relationship. It's the longing of a bridegroom for his bride. I think when we think about strengthening this spiritual muscle of waiting for the bridegroom's return, it's helpful to know that there's something very singular about waiting. So how could you say there's so much more that is the obedience of faith, right? Well, there's something singular about waiting. When you're waiting for someone to come to your house, all of your activity is drawn into that person's arrival. And so you don't start like mowing the lawn or cleaning the garage or you don't start a movie or lay out a project on the kitchen table. No, you're looking out the window. All your focus is on, you know, somebody coming. They're about to come. They're about here. They're they're coming. They're coming. It's the only thing you can think of. I think the obedience of faith that Jesus is getting at here is there's something that grows in a singular way. There's one thing needful. What is that one thing needful, church? It is waiting for the return of the bridegroom. In our last week's sermon, John Daniel used a word that I think was helpful for this text. He used the word disenchanted. And, you know, somebody told me, a friend told me a story of once being enchanted with a woman he thought he was going to marry. He didn't end up marrying her. He married somebody else. But he said he eventually became disenchanted with this woman and he married somebody else, he became disenchanted because more and more was exposed. It makes me think in Ecclesiastes 2, where the king has the chance to pursue everything to its end, you know, wine, women, and song, ambition, wealth, building great aqueducts. Solomon was a great man in Ecclesiastes, and he said he pushed those things all to the end, and they were meaningless. He became disenchanted with them part of being a disciple of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew is we're becoming disenchanted with everything else in the world, and we're becoming enchanted with the one thing, the return of the bridegroom, to begin the great, joyous, lavish wedding feast, during which time he will put the worlds to rights. We're at the end of our series, The World Waits for a Miracle, And again, we're saying, boy, this is the place. It's the essential posture of a disciple. What is it? It's waiting for the return. The essential posture of a disciple is locating us between the first and second comings of Christ. And we are ardently, urgently, eagerly waiting for the return of Christ. I gave you during Advent this hourglass symbol And I would encourage you not to put it away with the Christmas stuff. You know, leave your manger out all year. (laughs) Yeah, leave your manger out all year. That's the first coming. And then leave this out all year. It helps you realize that your identity is waiting for the return of Christ in glory to restore the earth. We've been saying that he came the first time in humility as Messiah in the shadow of the cradle is the cross and he will return one day soon on the clouds to restore the earth and this will help you remember hey one day that's going to happen one of the reasons i like this hourglass is eventually the sand does run through and it's all out so eventually time's up time's up think about that eventually time's up now the first coming they were faithful jews were saying give it up the messiah is not coming then he came. One day, friends, he's going to return. And Community West Church, I want us to be the ones who aren't caught unawares. We're ready. Our focus had narrowed in. We're eagerly anticipating the return of Christ in glory to restore the earth. To God be the glory. Let's pray. Father, we can scarcely take it all in, but we long to be the church, the church that celebrates not just your first coming, but eagerly anticipates your return. Uh, We've just scratched the surface, but continue to form us and shape us, not around the many things, but the one ardent, eager longing of the return of the bridegroom for us his beautiful bride the church to him be the glory in christ's name we pray amen